and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor at Horse and Hound. Well, we've had real Olympic excitement this week with the first official indications of who might be on Britain's eventing team. More on that later. On a less exciting note, I am attending a briefing this week on being Horse and Hound's COVID liaison officer at the Olympic Games, which is definitely a job that I'm going to be adding to my CV. This week, our interviewee is the legendary former jockey Bob Champion, who looks back on his win in the Grand National 40 years ago. And I remember I jumped beaches about 29th, where I should have been. Must have had the best run around the canal turn than any jockey in the history of the race have had, because three fences later, which is Valentine's, which is three and a half miles from home, I jumped to the front. I'll be talking to our news team about owners in Tokyo, grants for riding schools and how Brexit affects the movement of people in the horse world as well as equines. Finally, we'll hear some advice from trainer Jason Webb, who specialises in starting young horses and retraining those with problems. When you take a new horse out to a new environment for the first time, having a plan on what to do is critical in creating behaviours that relax your horse. So that's enough from me. Buckle up your throat lash and let's get started. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, Horse and Hounds Racing Editor, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by a true legend of jump racing, a jockey who famously won a fairy tale Grand National in 1981 on the great Aldenuti, and who has worked tirelessly over the years to raise millions of pounds for cancer research through his Bob Champion Cancer Trust. Bob, it's great to have you here on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, Bob, this year you're celebrating a very special anniversary. It's 40 years since you won the Grand National, and to mark the event, you've been on a proper adventure we hear walking a mammoth 191 miles in just over a month can you tell us a bit more about this uh, bob's 40 for 40 challenge well basically as you know you've just said it was 40 years since i won the national but um you know i thought well we've got to um, raise some more money for the bob champion cancer trust because we haven't been able to raise anything for over 12 months because oh, of, of the virus and um you know we've got two research laboratories that we fund and run. Um, we did build them as well. And, um, you know, they're coming up with the goods as well. But, you know, it's hard if you've not got the money coming in. And I thought, um, had this idea, after the Cheltenham Gold Cup, I'd walk from um, Cheltenham to Aintree National Day. That didn't work out because of COVID restrictions. So then we came up with the idea um, everything seemed all right if we um, left Liverpool the day after the National and walked the 191 miles back to um, Finden where the horse was trained. Mm -hmm. And the reason it was 191 miles was because I spent 191 days in hospital. Um, so we thought a mile a day type of thing. So that's how it came about. And then I came up with this idea that I'd walk around 40 trainers gallops and that's how it all came about actually in virtually in a straight line from Aintree down to Finden. Oh wow. Bob tell us about some of the 40 stops along the way. Well we started off at um, Aintree they wouldn't let me go national day so um, we, I went the Sunday the day after the national and walked two or three times around the course actually and um, 
two or three people came and it was great. Neil Doughty came and walked around with me. He'd won the national on Hello Dandy. Um, so we chatted about old times and that was the start of it. And then the next day we moved on to Donald McCain's, you know. Um, Red Rum's father, well, Red Rum was trained by his father and Donald's trained national winners as well. So um, I thought that was a great place to start. Absolutely brilliant. And what was a typical day then? How far did you walk per day and who did you have with you? Um, just people from general public that paid and wanted to come and walk with us. Um, you know, it was fun. Um, we were walking anything between eight and nine, eight and ten miles, really. Um, but people think, oh, that doesn't sound much. Well, it isn't walking down on a flat road. You want to try walking up these gallops, <laughs> oh, actually. They're very steep. Um, it was a lot harder work than I anticipated, uh, especially in the first place. And, um, you know, also um, gallops, you know, as you know, are grass. And, um, you know, thick grass walking through that when the ground was hard, um, was very hard work. You had to pick your legs up every stride, really. Okay. Um, so that made it a lot harder, I must admit. Yeah. And you visited a whole string of trainers' yards along the way, didn't you? I'm looking at some of the names. There's sort of, um, you mentioned Donald McCain, there was Kim Bailey, Nicky Henderson. What, what were the people you met along the way? And tell us some of the adventures you met on the on the yards. Um, well, Kim Bailey walked around with us and... Um, enjoyed himself and um, <laughs> then Nicky Henderson he walked a couple of miles and um, I can remember um, going to uh, Clive Cox uh, John Frankham's place and John and Clive walked around with me and um, I can remember saying to John after we walked I think it was about eight miles that day and um, it was pretty hard work I said John are you going to come and walk another one with me he said the only place I'll walk now is round Newmarket at least it's flat <laughs> Yes. Oh, wow. Fantastic. You must have um, enjoyed meeting some members of the public who joined you as well. Is that right? Oh, yes. You know, the, the public were absolutely fantastic. You know, they're all interested in racing and, you know, and my cancer trust. And um, I think lots of them had been affected with cancer in some way. And um, it was great, you know, and um, as we moved south, you know, the momentum got better, actually. We started getting more and more people coming. And um, mind you, the weather was a lot better. And um, <laughs> we started off, it was pretty cold and then it got pretty warm. I only had two or three days that, well, it was overcoat weather. But, um, <laughs> you know, other days it was just, you know, a slight light jacket and, um, you know, it was fun. Brilliant. And you were able to enjoy it. Were there sort of aches and pains and blisters along the way as well? Or did you manage um, to enjoy it? I've always had back problems. Oh, um, it was hard work on my back, actually. Touch wood, I didn't get any blisters. Um, <laughs> the first couple of days, um, one of my nails stuck into my foot, actually. Or oh, into, goodness. And that was agony for two days, but um, that wore off very quickly. And... Um, you know, I was panicking a bit because I thought if it's going to get worse, um, it. it was agony, but oh, it went no. away. So um, I was very, very lucky there. Yes. Um, and tell us about the final day. You finished on the 15th of May at Finden, the yard of Nick Gifford, whose father, Josh, of course, trained Alderniti. It sounded like an emotional end to it all. Tell us, tell us about that final day. Oh, it was absolutely 
fantastic, I must admit, you know. I hadn't been down to Finland for a few years, and um, so I was really looking forward to it. And then, a couple of days before, I'd heard they'd arranged me to ride a horse. Um, mind you, I haven't sat on a horse for 10 years. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I thought, you know, hope to God it's quiet. But I had a <laughs> lovely chestnut horse of Andrew Waits. And um, he was a Christian, actually. And um, and we cantered up um, the gallops, actually. So it brought back memories and hadn't forgotten what to do. And I didn't get <laughs> run away with either. <laughs> and it was sort of similar to the ride you did on Alderniti after the Grand National. Is that right? Yes, it was actually. You know, that was quite a long lot of years ago because <laughs> I rode from uh, Buckingham Palace to um, Aintree and um, the old horse. It was brilliant to uh, canter him up the um, home straight at Aintree. And um, sadly, he's not about now. But funny enough, the horse I rode looked a little bit like him. And riding back up through the village, up to um, the stables. Um, I can always remember that day after the National, he was led up. Uh, Pete W used to look after him, led him up, and there was thousands of people come to see him come back. And there was a lot of people came to see me ride up, and that meant an awful lot to me. Oh, brilliant. I can imagine an emotional moment anyway. Um, and how much have you raised so far? There was a, it was a £45,000 target, is that right? I thought in the first place we'd make twenty five thousand, <laughs> and Lucy from the trust said we'd make forty. Um, at the moment, we've got to eighty eight, I think, <gasps> um, which is out of this world. Can't believe it. I would love to break the um, ninety bar barrier, I really would, and love to get past ninety, and um, hopefully we'll get there. That would be amazing. This challenge is just one of the latest in a sort of string of fundraising efforts. Can you tell us a bit more about the work you do through the Bob Champion Cancer Trust? Well, um, you know, basically we've got to keep coming up with fundraising because we get nothing from the government. And we've got scientists in both our units, the one at Sutton and the one in Norwich, and they're coming up with some spectacular results, actually. Um, they need paying, but, you know, we are research. And um, if it wasn't for research, I wouldn't be here. If I'd got cancer 18 months before, there was no cure for me. And um, they only gave me a 30% chance of living. Um, but, you know, thankfully I got through it. And that type of Pacific cancer, I had testicular, uh, as I said, was 30%. Now it's 95% full recovery long as it's caught early enough. So we're big on prostate at the moment and we are coming up with the goods there. And, um, you know, basically finding out early. Um, if you don't find out early about these diseases, um, you know, if it gets too late, you can't cure it. But early stages, you can always seem to cure them or stop it spreading badly. So, yeah. you know, that's what we're trying to do. And um, we're getting there. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, it's tremendous work. And unfortunately, we hear that you're having to return to hospital soon yourself. Is that right? Yes, it is, actually. Um, before I started the walk, I was having these very bad back pains. And I must they were bad. And um, I was worried, would I be able to do the walk? And I got talking to a doctor and I persuaded them 
um, there was something wrong and they sent me for a scan, then another scan and another scan. Oh, and they've said I've got a tumour on one of my kidneys. So I've got to either have the whole kidney out or hopefully a third. Right. And that should be in the next two or three weeks. Right. Um, but there shouldn't be any side effects, they said. And um, hopefully they're going to get it all out. Um, believe it or not, it's done by a robot now. Oh, really? Um, God knows what, how, I hope I get on with the robot. And <laughs> yes. um, I hope they've filled him up with petrol or whatever they use him. <laughs> the doctors must have been amazed that you were um, off on your challenge just before. They must have been very impressed with the... 191 miles before uh, beforehand. It's I don't know if they were impressed or think I'm stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, wishing you all the best. I hope that goes well. Um, now, as we said, it's been 40 years since that momentous day at Atree. Can you um, sort of take us back? What were your best memories of the race and the build-up and the aftermath? Well, I was always very confident of winning, actually. Um, I'd had 10 rides before and got round five times, and every time I went down to the start, I thought I'd win, but <laughs> I never really thought it seriously. But this year, that year, I really did. Um, I thought it was a formality. I don't know why I thought that, because um, I can remember, you know, getting down to the start, and the governor said to me, um, hold him up into the last fence. Um the way we always used to ride him. So we jumped off and um, he overjumped the first, was awful at the second, stood oh, off no. too far. <laughs> then he realised the fences were a little bit bigger and really got his act together. And I can remember I jumped beaches about 29th, where I should have been. Must have had the best run around the canal turn than any jockey in the history of the race have had <laughs> because three fences later, which is Valentine's, which is three and a half miles from home, I jumped to the front. So I spent the next three and a half miles thinking of the rollicking I'm getting in the stands from the governor, so I better start <laughs> thinking of excuses. Oh, no. And um, I went through five red rum nationals in my brain, and um, then I realised going out in the country the second time I'm there now, I was going my pace and um, jumping for fun. And coming to the last fence, it was the only fence I couldn't see a stride. <gasps> he was getting a little bit tired, I suppose, and there was no stride. And I'm thinking, if I stand him off and deck him, I'm going to look an idiot. So I better just let him drift into the corner a little bit and pop. Thankfully, I chose that method and um, got away from the fence pretty sharp. And um, John Thorne came to me at the elbow. But I always realised I was holding him. And, you know, as soon as I hit the running rail, I started going away. I won about three lengths. Another 100 yards, I'd have won 10 lengths. So, wow. you know, I knew the old horse could keep galloping. Oh, and what a horse he was. I mean, he had his fair share of trouble as well, didn't he? He had a serious leg injury that he came back from. Yes, he had three lots of leg injuries and broken bones. He spent more time standing in plaster in a stable than he ever did in training, actually. <laughs> oh, bless him. But, I mean, he, what made him so good, do you think? What were his best attributes? Um, one, he was 150% genuine. He would gallop until he dropped. And two, um, he was a very good jumper. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Um, and of course, you're best remembered for Alderniti, but you teamed up with some other wonderful horses and won many big races over the years. What, were, what are your sort of proudest moments from your career as a jump jockey? Um, 
I was very fortunate when Hennessy's on approaching, really good other horse I rode was a horse called Strombolus. I was very fortunate. I rode some really nice horses. And um, mind you, I had a good job as well because I had a great trainer, Josh Gifford, a very loyal man and a brilliant trainer. Oh, and finally, Bob, you set off on your walk the day after we saw another defining moment in sporting history with Rachel Blackmore becoming the first female jockey to win the Grand National. What did you make of her achievement? And do you think it would have seemed possible 40 years ago that she would have achieved that? 40 years ago? No, I didn't, actually. (laughs) But um, things have changed in 40 years. Um, Jockeys um, have got a lot fitter, and especially the girls. They've got so many good girls out there, not just Rachel, and she's phenomenal. Um, You know, look at the Cheltenham she had. She had more winners than uh, British trainers had winners. And, (laughs) um, you know, a superb jockey, horses jump for her which is the main thing and they run for her and you know out in the race she's in control you know she is very very good we've got brownie frost over here horses run and jump for her there's some good girls out there now and then if you look on the flat holly doyle you know holly doyle could be champion jockey um and i really mean that she's light horses run for her and she's strong um she's very very good you know, people kept saying it's a man's world, but um, the women are doing really, really well. Brilliant. Yeah, it's exciting times, isn't it, how it's how it's changed. But it's, uh, yeah, it's very exciting. Um, Bob, thank you. That's been such a wonderful insight. Um, just a reminder again that if people want to donate, you're just giving pages Bob-Champion2, is that right? Yes, that's it. Yes. Oh, if you just look onto the website, um, bobchampion.org.uk, um that'll give all you the information just get in touch with my bob champion cancer trust there's lots of ways getting there just put it in and you'll find it that's brilliant lovely chatting with you bob thank you very much for joining us this week thank you very much have a good day So I'm joined today by three of my colleagues from the Horse and Hound News Desk. First of all, it's hello to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hi, Eleanor. How are you? Morning. All good. Feeling like I really shouldn't be complaining. I spent the whole of April moaning that we had no rain and now we've had nothing but and howling gales. And it's just like, really? Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yesterday it started raining in our kitchen, so I was less than delighted about that. So looking forward to having a builder come around to hopefully do something about that today. Uh, We also have with us our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. How are you, Lucy? I'm good, thank you, Pippa. Although I did start my morning this morning by having a full mug of thankfully lukewarm coffee uh, chucked in my face by my horse as I was standing absentmindedly chatting to the farrier this morning. I wasn't holding her and the coffee at the same time, I might just add, but she woke up from her lovely snooze purely to just with exactly the right amount of precision and force, just bop the bottom of my coffee cup so it went fully in my face and it was you know in my ears both eyes up my nose and she was fast asleep by the time I looked round again so I, <laughs> I know people say that horses don't do things like that deliberately but I'm certain she was laughing at me this morning. <laughs> well talking of animals sleeping I did just say I've got my parents dog staying and she is asleep and she has a loud and ostentatious snore so if anyone can hear her I apologize for that. <laughs> Finally, we have with us our news writer, Becky Murray. How are things with you, Becky? 
Not too bad. Um, my horse also had a sense of humour this morning. Um, well, the Shetland ponies were getting vaccinated and they behaved themselves. But my, my mare, Chloe, she's been looking just slightly off behind. So I thought I'd trot her up for the vet while he was here. But that was far too exciting for her and she just exploded. And she wouldn't trot. We just had canter and bucking. So... I think she's fine, to be honest. But <laughs> Well, it's good to hear that she's in good spirits. <laughs> so we are going to kick off today's news review by talking about the fact that the nominated entries for the British eventing squad for Tokyo have been released. So this is the point when... The British selectors and British equestrian announced the names of the riders who are going to be put forward. It's not at this stage the actual team. What we were given was nine names and three reserves. And those 12 names go forward to the FEI. I think it's the 21st of June is the deadline. And the important point to note, I think, is that nobody whose name is not on that list can ride at the Olympics. So once those names are filed, if you're not on that list, you are not going. So the team will be chosen from this list. The way that they've chosen to do it is to release least this nine with three reserves that does not mean that the reserve slash substitute for, for riding in Tokyo will be chosen from the reserves my understanding is that the nine are the sort of primary candidates and the three reserves are the next the next ones in line so to speak so we're focusing on the the nine who've been named as the nominated entries it's so exciting. Um, when this came in, I was actually on a call with uh, with my boss, Sarah, our editor-in-chief, and I was just starting the call. I couldn't hear her because I had something on my headphones. And I said, the nominated entries of Tokyo have just come in. Can we push this back? I can't hear you. I hope that's okay. Goodbye. And I just put the, put the, <laughs> I basically just dropped the meeting, which is not really a tip on how to, you know, get yourself in favour with your boss anywhere apart from horse and hound, I don't think. <laughs> it's the Olympics. It is the Olympics. We're so excited. Right. I'm going to give a quick rundown of who the nine are and then I'm going to come round to our news team and see what you think about the list so the nine that we're looking at are Ros Cantor and All-Star B, Laura Collett and London 52, Pippa Funnel and Myers Hope, Kitty King and Vondra Dibiatz, Piggy March with Brookfield Innocent, Tom McEwen on Toledo de Cursa, Harry Mead and Superstition, Oliver Town and Balamore Class and Nicola Wilson with Bilana. So Lucy let's come to you first what do you think about the list? Oh, it's such an exciting list, isn't it? I mean, what a what a field. I don't envy the selectors and having to pick from these because this is so strong, isn't it? I, I've been looking down these. I saw quite a few of them run at Aston Le Walls the not that long ago, and they look fantastic there. And I don't know, honestly, how anyone's going to pick from 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 those, I mean, Laura Collett and London 52 have got, well, they won five out of their last six events. And that sixth event was one where they didn't run cross country. Ros Cantor and All-Star B are world champions and they looked on absolute top form at Aston Walls. Kitty King, Vondry Dubiertz, that lovely, lovely one of her two lovely greys. And he is, he is definitely a superstar on the rise. We know Piggy March is on the form of her life. And then that's just looking at the rest there it's just I'm I hadn't really got excited about Tokyo until this list dropped and now it's all starting to feel quite real again and yeah Pippa what are your thoughts? Well I think that the interesting thing for me with these lists is always who's missing as much as who is on it Um I don't 
think there are a lot of surprises in terms of who's included in the list, apart from possibly um, Myers Hope, Pippa Funnels Horse, who was a team silver medalist at the Europeans in 2019 and a great pathfinder there, but has been quite an under the radar horse. And I had maybe expected to see Pippa listed with her Burley winner, MGH Grafton Street. So he's one of the horses who's missing, which I probably expected to see him there. Maybe also expected to see Tina Cook and, and Billy the Red. Um, so for me, those two are the two who I might have expected to see which are missing, which is maybe the most interesting part of this list. I think from the nine, there are five front runners, but I'm going to come to Eleanor and get your thoughts first. And then I'll tell you who I think my five front runners are. So Eleanor, what do you think? Oh, just what Lucy said, really. I mean, worst problems to have as selectors, but you know how to pick a team out of these this amazing lineup, isn't it? Isn't it brilliant for British eventing that we can put this many names and this many horses forward at this stage? Yeah, well, I'm going to put myself out there and say that for me, there are five sort of front runners among those nine. For me, the front runners are All Star B, London Fifty Two, Brookfield Innocent, Talalia de Cursa, and Ballamore Class. I will add at this point that I don't think I've ever been completely right in a British team selection in the 17 years I've been eventing editor. So nobody who I've just named should get too excited. Nobody who I haven't named should get depressed. I will almost <laughs> certainly be wrong. But and of course, we're only looking for four, not five. And I, I can't decide who I would take out. Um, but it's going to be really exciting. We will find out on the 28th of June who the four are when the British squad is actually named. There's lots of action to happen before that over the next month. But we're going to talk about another Tokyo story as well today. Becky, this is one of yours. It's about owners at the Olympics. What's the crux of this story? Well, the FEI recently wrote to the National Federations informing them about a decision made by the International Olympic Committee and the Tokyo Organising Committee. And this decision was that only one owner per horse will be allowed to attend the Games. Now, in previous years, it has been two. And of course, for horses with multiple owners, this is going to be massively disappointing and I imagine going to cause some quite difficult decisions. Yeah, definitely. And is there any hope of this changing? What, what steps are people taking? British Equestrian and other national federations are campaigning to see if the dis decision can be reversed and you know they're working hard on this. The FEI is also lobbying the International Organising Committee and is really urging riders and to contact their National Olympic Committees about this. So I think we'll have to wait and see what happens next. Mm. And I know that it's something that sort of has been discussed around the Olympics before, which is obviously that hockey sticks don't have owners who need to go to the Olympics or, you know, your, your running shoes if you're if you're a hundred meter runner. But of course, in horse sport, owners are essentially our primary sponsors and they're so important in the sport. You know, the sport at the top level simply wouldn't and couldn't exist in its its current format without them and they plough thousands and thousands of pounds into the sport. So it would be incredibly disappointing if they have to sort of draw straws and can only, only send one person. And I know that several of the horses on that list have two, three, four owners, certainly even on the British side. So let's hope we can get some joy there. The other thing, of course, being that this is particularly important to this Olympics because there are no international spectators. So previously, if you weren't one of the two owners, you might have been able to buy a ticket. But that that won't be the case. You won't be in Tokyo if you don't get that that owner accreditation. So let's see what happens there and hope we can get some movement. Moving on to a different topic, Eleanor, you have been a massive champion of riding schools throughout the past year of COVID. This week, you've scored a win. What's been happening? 
Oh, it's just it's brilliant. Um, we we did mention last week that we that there had been this confusion over the government's giving out these restart grants, and there had been some confusion because the list of um, eligible businesses said quote indoor riding schools, and um, at the last minute, the sort of the government came back to us and said, oh no, that you know that isn't an exhaustive list, and actually outdoor schools are eligible too. So it, it's just been really good. We've had uh, lots of riding schools getting in touch, and they had been told by their councils that they weren't eligible for the grant because and these are significant grants sort of up to 18,000 and they've been told they weren't eligible because they weren't quote indoor centres so I've been ringing around lots of councils and lots of riding schools and we've had people coming back in touch saying thank you you know we've now been told we're going to get the money so absolutely brilliant. Mm, brilliant work it's nice sometimes when we feel like a story that we're covering and the way we're covering it is actually bringing about change rather than rather than rather than simply reporting on it isn't it oh definitely and I would say as well if there are any people listening who run riding schools and have been told they're not eligible for these restart grants because they're outdoors please do get in touch and I'll see if I can help Oh, thank you Eleanor but I do think that things aren't as rosy in Scotland is that right what's the picture there yeah, so of course this is a devolved thing. So this has been up to the, the Scottish government has got different restart grants. And the the difficult thing there is because technically Scottish riding schools weren't didn't have to fully close during lockdown, they aren't eligible for these grants. And I have been chasing up, I uh, spoke to a Scottish uh, equestrian centre that was a, a sort of competition venue and clinic uh, venue and they were told they weren't eligible but then she said but we did actually have to close you know we had police here three times to check that we weren't doing anything how are we not eligible for the grant and and so I'm currently still tra- chasing that one up and trying to get some results there. Oh thank you Eleanor that sounds like good work you're doing there on behalf of riding schools. Lucy coming to you finally today we have done a lot of stories recently about moving horses around post Brexit but this one is about people what is the deadline that's looming? So the deadline coming up is 30th of June and that is for anyone from the EU who's been living in the UK before the 31st of December last year to apply for settled or pre-settled status which means that they can stay in the UK legally now that the UK has left the EU post-Brexit. And Lucy can you spell out for us what sort of workers in the horse industry might be affected by this? So this is everyone really it's not just the horse industry it's it's the whole of the UK but of course that covers all corners of the equestrian world as well so what I wanted to do with this and I'm certain that the vast vast majority of people who you know EU nationals who are living and working legally and rightfully in Britain as they have have always had right to do so um, I'm certain that this is something that they've been very aware of but what I wanted to make sure of is that if there's anyone out there that hasn't perhaps quite done it yet or started it yet or is even struggling with it that they don't think this is something that can quickly be done at the last minute Uh, it's not necessarily straightforward to do we've been hearing from people where English is their first language and they are quite on top of government speak and government forms and they've been telling us that it's you know it takes a bit of time and so the message really is to to start it now I've been hearing from people that that are, you know, English is their first language and even for them, they're finding the process. It's quite daunting. It's quite a lot of hoops to jump through. It's quite individual for each person as well. It's not about being pro or anti-Brexit or which way people voted. That's that's done and gone. This now is about understanding and negotiating what the new post-Brexit rules mean for individual people. 
what I just really want to avoid is anyone in our industry who might not yet have done it or is struggling with it to know where to go and find more information out about it there's a link to um to an independent charity there that can help as well for anyone struggling to get their heads around the government website and last thing i want for according to the equestrian world to be facing visits from the home office or to be unsure if the country that they've lived in legally and made their lives and their work in is somewhere that is suddenly in jeopardy while there is still time to sort this out and get that done so we've got the links in our web story uh, on Horsetown Plus and in the print magazine as well if there's anyone needs any help in finding out some more information about that. And I was struck in your story, Lucy, by the fact that, for example, the UK is a major employer of European vets. You said that uh, there are over 5,000 of them practicing in the UK. So that's interesting that, you know, very skilled workers in the horse industry and in different areas could be affected by this. And as you say, those links are in our magazine story and online. And hopefully people can get their paperwork sorted. Thank you, Lucy. And thank you to Eleanor and Becky for joining us today, too. So now we're going over to Jason Webb, a trainer who specialises in starting young horses and retraining those with problems. Born in Australia, Jason is now based in Kent and his online training service at yourhorsemanship.com means owners around the world can learn from his techniques. Over to you, Jason. On this episode, we're going to be talking about dealing with horses in a new environment. So when you take a new uh, horse out to a new environment for the first time, it can be quite an overwhelming experience. And so having a plan on what to do is critical in creating behaviours that relax your horse and help your horse as they move forward into their careers and learn to relax in these new environments. So what do you do to start with? The first thing that I would do is as little as possible. So let's think about this we've got to a new environment we've say unloaded our horse your horse is looking around taking in this new environment and they're quite anxious at this point i just allow them to take in the environment people say get your horse busy and that sort of thing but a horse that's in a sort of in a sort of flight state or taking in the environment they don't tend to be able to to learn or listen very well. They're slightly incoherent. So at this point, it's just allow them to move around, potentially on a circle, so you can sort of manage where they're going and just wait for them to settle, wait for their head to drop. And then we can start to do something. Now, when they first come off, depending on your level of, um, or your horse's level of groundwork or obedience on the ground, the main thing is to protect your personal space. So you get some horses when they first come off the lorry will drop their shoulder into you or sort of tow you off a little bit. Well, if you're having those problems, then they need to be looked at in a familiar environment before you introduce a new environment. So when you come to this new environment, you can just use a few skills just to keep your horse away from you, but again, doing as little as possible. 
once your horse starts to settle and you'll notice that it's because their head lowers and their movement decreases and you can see in their eye this their eye is starting to just soften then you can start to potentially say here i am and it's fine and you do that by using familiar exercises so you will have your own things that you do with your horses and that that your horses already know so so use those things what i like to use and i'll give you guys some of the some of these tips is first a static flexion or you'll see a carrot stretch except i don't use carrots i just use the pressure of a head collar just to bend my horse's neck around towards me so i stand by my horse's wither and i use the head collar apply some pressure to bend my horse's neck and i get them to bend about 90 degrees the reason i do this is i think of it as like a a tension barometer if my horse is really stiff and doesn't want to bend when they know this exercise then it tells me they're still a little bit worried about the environment and i may need to wait a little longer or i may need to do these stretches a few times now these stretches or this bend does exactly that it stretches one side of your horse and that in itself is a relaxing thing to do we all know what it's like to do the odd stretch and what it does to your body and if your body starts to relax then your mind will start to relax so doing this on both sides is a is a good little check along with your just walking and allowing that time for your horse to settle the next thing to do is or that i look to doing is starting to to do some more controlled leading so depending how you lead your horse i start to establish boundaries so if i'm leading from the side of my horse i start to say right we need to walk in a straight line for a little bit and only turn when i ask you to turn because some horses will push through you. So we want to start to reduce that idea. And I think of when I lead from the side of a horse as there being a boundary that runs parallel to the horse. So being able to keep your horse walking in a straight line and not looking across your body or across your line of travel or even walking across your line of travel for me is an important thing to start to establish. Um, if you lead your horse from, from the front, then your boundary is simply if you were to hold your arms out to your side like you're a plane a pretend plane um, then this creates a sort of an imaginary line so when you put your hands down there's a line that runs by your side i would i would i wouldn't allow my horse to walk past that line and there's various different techniques to teach your horse that you know the boundary is now becoming established you need to wait behind me and just follow me around so there are just a couple of boundaries that i look to establish and my horse as my horse starts to settle in this new um, surrounding from there i mean some people talk about lunging their horses and getting their horses moving and yes if you have an environment and your horse does well with this it's a good idea but i do find that lunging isn't always possible so it's something that if you if you can use it and your horse is receptive to that sort of work then great i am always careful with lunging because 
it can actually excite a horse more before it brings them down and that's something to consider so when we move on to to riding our horses hopefully your horse has started to settle enough that you can hop on your horse and, and they become more like they are at home when you get on and ride your horse i would do a very similar thing so as when i get on my horse i would allow it to move around a small area using bend to help me control my horse now the reason i like to use bend when i first get on a horse in a new environment that's small circles serpentines you know in a sort of a, in, a, in an area no bigger than 10 meters is that allows my horse to get rid of that excess energy that they might be feeling and not introduce them to a new environment where you are so they're, they're staying relatively stationary but you're allowing movement to happen and this this again i just allow it to happen until i feel my horse's head lower slightly um, the controls become softer and my horse horse starts to soften in their movement they're not looking to sort of really power on and when i start to feel this then i start to use the work that i that my horse knows at home just to start to introduce simple boundaries before i start to move into the new environment so if your horse hasn't been off your farm or away from your stables before then the place to go to is a more neutral environment so to a friend's place to a, to a lesson where it's relatively um, quiet, your horse and you can manage in this environment. Once your horse gets used to this, then you can start to move on to more energetic or more intense environments, but do it incrementally. And my last word on this is your horse, horses when you go to new environments are more spooky or tend to be more spooky if this is the case make sure you've got a plan to manage that spooky situation and again for me flight situations are managed using um, one rein controls and bend so i hope that's been useful for you and good luck in introducing your horse to new environments thank you jason Next week, Jason will tackle teaching horses to stand while being hosed. And as the owner of a grey, I am definitely all ears for that one. Our interviewee will be International Grand Prix dressage rider Alice Oppenheimer, talking about her up-and-coming Grand Prix horse and the joy of homebreds. Plus, of course, we'll have all the week's news as usual. Also, do you realise that next week is the Horse and Ham podcast's birthday? It will be a whole year since we kicked off. And as a reminder, we've had five of the nine riders who are nominated for the British Olympic eventing team for Tokyo on the podcast during the past 12 months. So if you fancy listening to Laura Collett, Piggy French, Kitty King, Pippa Funnel or Nicola Wilson, do check out our back catalogue. There were some great interviews with those riders. Talk to you next week. The Horse and Ham podcast is a Media Cage production.